0: So we're starting a new uh, sermon series today, and uh, Pastor Mike and I played around with several titles for this theme that we wanted to talk about that we saw in the scriptures. Um, We want to talk about the biblical idea that God wants to take your life from what it is and make it something better. Through the power of God, we can take one kind of life and exchange it for another kind of life. We can trade darkness for light. We can trade death for life. We can trade hopelessness for confident expectation. We can trade sin for righteousness, defeat for victory, and sorrow for joy. And lots of other themes like that are are taught in the scriptures, and we were thinking about that, and, and we wanted to, to find a way to uh, communicate that to our church over these next few weeks. We want to, to make sure that we all know that God wants to make your life better. He wants to take away your guilt and replace it with forgiveness. He wants to exchange your hatred for love. So we had a few different ideas for a series title, but we landed on this idea, Flip the Script. And here's what it means. To flip the script is to reverse the expected, usual, or existing positions in a situation. To do something unexpected or revolutionary. That is, your story is is headed in a certain direction. There's a certain outcome that is uh, coming And then you flip the script, you change the story so that a different outcome results. God wants to flip the script on your life. He wants to do something unexpected and revolutionary in you. God wants your life to be exceptional. God does not want you to be normal. His plan for your life is to reverse the expected trajectory And to put you on a new course that leads you to the abundant life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's the NIV translation The ESV uses, the the more uh, uh, traditional wording here where it says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That abundant life, we're having life to the full, that is what God wants for your life. We are not made to just get by from day to day and make it to the end of the week, collect our paycheck, pay our bills, and do it all again the next week. That is not the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. God wants your life to be extraordinary, abundant, and full. And as we go on in this series of sermons, Pastor Mike and I will be showing you from various parts of the Bible how it is that God wants to make your life to be different from the normal, expected life. So today we're starting out the series by looking at uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the major cities of the day back in uh, the time when this was written. It's uh, on the west coast of what is now Turkey, and uh, and this letter was written by the apostle to the church that he had started there, and uh, and we're going to be looking at chapter two of Ephesians today. Um, I'm going to we're going to look at most of the whole chapter here. Uh, I'm going to go quickly through the first half of the chapter, and then we'll spend a little more time in the second half. Here's what it says in Ephesians. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Well, that's a nice cheery way to to start off, isn't it? The Bible says that we all start off on our spiritual journey physically alive, but spiritually dead in our sins, living to gratify our sinful desires and deserving of wrath. Wrath. Now, for some of us, this part of the biblical teaching is easier to accept than it is for others. For some people, uh, their sins and failures are very obvious to them. But for some of us, we feel like, you know, we're actually pretty good people. Uh, Especially uh, when we compare ourselves to some other people that we know, are, are, are we really that bad. We try to be nice. We try to be kind and polite and helpful. Are we really deserving of wrath? Not really. Uh, We tend to think that if wrath comes on us, actually that's unfair. It isn't what we deserve. And for people who feel that way or to You know, a lot of us who are Christians, we don't want to admit that we feel that way, but deep down we kind of do. But for those of us who feel that way, it's good for us to read sections of the Bible like Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is a section from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and in that sermon he, uh, he says things like this. He says, "'You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment.' but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then a few verses later, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And you see, when we, when we take a look at God's standard of righteousness and holiness and what he considers to be justice and righteousness, and then we take a good look at ourselves we see that it is true that we are people who are sinful and deserving of God's wrath. And even though that's not a very nice thought, it is important that we understand this. Because what God offers us is not a transformation from a pretty good life to an even better life. It's not as if without God... Uh, we would still be all right. It's just that God wants to, to amp it up just a couple of notches. That's not our situation. Without God, there might still be some nice things in our lives, but it is all based on a corrupt foundation. Without Jesus, we are dead in our sins and deserving of the wrath of God that is coming. So we need to accept the bad news here. Things are not good for us in our sins. But luckily, verses 4 and 5 follow verses 1 to 3. Here's what it says there. It says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, that sentence is the good news. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the best news imaginable for someone who really understands their own sinfulness and the path that that sin puts us on. Things are bad, but God. We are deserving of wrath, but God, because of his Great love for us. God's mercy and grace have made us alive even when we were dead. That's another one of the big exchanges where God flips the script. He takes us from death to life. But we're actually not going to focus on that one this morning. We're going to save that one for another day. We'll have a, a message focused on that whole change from death to life. Uh, From now, uh, we need to keep moving on in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. In this chapter, Paul talks about being brought from uh, bringing spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead, but then in the second half of the chapter, there's another way that God wants to flip the script in your life, and that discussion starts in verse 11, where he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now first let me emphasize that the Bible calls us to remember where we came from. That's what it says there, right? Therefore, remember that formerly you were in this situation. We don't want to dwell too much on the past uh, and our failures and our sins. That's not healthy for us to, to be too focused on that, but it's also not healthy for us to forget it. We need to remember our past failures and our sins and remember what God has brought us out from. God created humanity perfect and sinless. Um, this is part of, uh, I want to explain a little bit of how, what he's talking about here when he talks about this whole thing of uh, you are Gentiles and circumcision and uncircumcision and the covenants of promise and all that. I need to give you a little background information to really understand what's, what's going on with that uh, whole description of what our situation was. And uh, to really understand it, you kind of got to know your, your Old Testament. And I'm going to give a really brief uh, summary here of, uh, of how all this uh, fits into our situation. So God created humanity perfect and sinless, but we chose to rebel against him and sin. That is, our, our ancestors uh, in the Garden of Eden chose to rebel, and we have all confirmed that choice in our own lives, and we've all also chosen to rebel against God. And that... Uh, distorted our lives and our purpose in life and our relationship with God and all the things that God wanted for us were all distorted by sin. But God had a plan to rescue us from sin. It was a gradual plan and it had quite a number of stages leading up to the climax of it. And And one of the, uh, the first... Uh, stages of that plan was uh, that God chose Abraham, the man of faith, and his family as the ones who would bring God's salvation. And God made a covenant with Abraham that his offspring, and, and Abraham's offspring that salvation would come through one of them. So that's one of those covenants of salvation that is referred to here. And then later, when God delivered the people of Abraham, his descendants, from slavery in Egypt, he established a much more detailed covenant with them at Mount Sinai where he gave Moses the Ten Commandments and a whole lot more instructions about uh, what he expected from them. And he told them how they could approach him and how they could offer a substitutionary sacrifice to take on their sin and guilt. That is, they could... Bring an animal. When they had sinned, they could bring an animal and they could say, I am laying the guilt of my sin on this animal, and then that animal would die in their place. And that was a way for them to symbolize the the guilt that they had and the payment that needed to be made for their sins. And of course, that covenant was still just preliminary, it was just another step along the way. Because you see those sacrifices of the animals and things that were made at the tabernacle and made at the temple uh, didn't really take care of sins, right? Because the animals really were not guilty. The people were guilty. And they could symbolically lay their guilt on those animals and sacrifice them for the sins. But it was all just a symbol and a foreshadow of the real sacrifice that was coming. Those sacrifices only symbolized the real sacrifice. But part of the covenant that God made on Mount Sinai was also about making a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. The Jewish people who followed God's covenant and the rest of the world who continued to reject God and live in their sins. And a strong distinction was made between the people of God and the other people. It was possible for people who were born uh, outside of the covenant and outside of the Jewish nation uh, to uh, change their allegiance and become part of the covenant people of God. And we see examples of that throughout uh, the Bible, but, but not that many, really. Mostly, it was the Jewish covenant people of God and uh, the outsiders. If you were not born into a godly covenant-keeping family, You were not part of the covenant people of God. And so the Bible says that we should remember that we were Gentiles by birth. We were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. That was our situation before we became christians we were not only stuck in sin we were not part of the people of god god's means of dealing with sin did not include us because salvation is not universal god has made a way for us to be free from our sins but that way is not or that way is open to all but the bible is clear that not all will find the way of salvation In fact, we all start our spiritual journey dead in our sins and far from God, strangers and aliens to the way of salvation without hope and without God. He says without hope because uh, without God's plan of salvation, we will never be able to deal with sin ourselves. It is a hopeless thing for us to say, okay, I'm a sinful person and so I'm going to fix it. I'm going to uh, make a New Year's resolution, and I'm going to stop sinning, and I'm going to be the person that God wants me to be. But that is a hopeless thing. No effort on our part will ever solve our problem. We are sinful people without hope to deal with the consequences of sin by ourselves. So, remember who you were. You were in a bad place. But just like in the first half of the chapter, this part of Ephesians 2 also has a great transition statement. It says uh, in verse uh, 13, it says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is, we came from a bad place, And we are to remember that, but we are also to remember that we have been saved from that. We were far from God, but Jesus has brought us near to God by his blood. When Jesus gave his life on the cross, our sins were atoned for. They were covered and God's long planned salvation came to its climax and we were saved. All of those other sacrifices that were done in ages past in the temple, and the tabernacle that were just symbols, all came to the thing that they were symbolizing happened when Jesus died and his death was not like those deaths because his death actually paid the price for our sins. And the great problem of sin was solved by Jesus' sacrifice, Next verse here says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. See, the cultural and religious barriers that kept the Jewish people of God's covenant separate from the Gentiles has been destroyed By Jesus, that's what it's talking about here. It says, he fulfilled the whole law, and in doing so, he set aside the things that kept us separate. Goes on to say, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So one part of Jesus' work on the cross uh, is that Jesus created one new humanity. That is, as Christians, all the things that normally divide us are done away with. We have a real connection with all other Christians that unites us as one people of God. And this is stated most clearly in Galatians chapter 3, where it says this. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, that is, there are no racial divisions. Neither slave nor free, there are no economic divisions. Nor is there male or female, there are no gender divisions. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, racial differences and economic differences and gender differences all still exist, but we are not divided by those things. We are all one as Christians. We are the people of God, and we stand as equals before God and to one another as members of the community of God's people. Back to Ephesians, uh, still on the same topic here in Ephesians 2. It says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So wherever you were in your spiritual journey when you became a Christian, whether you were near or far from God, because some of us, are pretty simple and pretty out there and want nothing to do with God. And there are some of us who uh, really, we're religious people, we, uh, we, we try to follow God and things, but still there's a point where we come to understand and accept the gospel. But whether you were uh, closer to God or farther away from God, the gospel applies to us all, and we all have access to the same salvation through Jesus, so that we can approach God, the Father of us all. Next verse says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. The world is still divided in the same way as it was in the days when these things were written. We have conflict between men and women. And this has been uh, very much brought to the public attention very recently with the whole Me Too movement that has shown the conflict between men and women, been in the news a lot this last year. We also have racial conflict. Go back just a little ways and we had the Black Lives Matter movement which is not in the news as much now but uh, showed the racial conflict in our society we have economic conflict. You go back just a couple more years and they had the Occupy Wall Street movement in which there was that economic conflict between people of different uh, economic ideas and economic places. And whatever side of those movements you side with, the fact is that it's clear that we have conflict in our society around all these issues. And when we uh, widen our look beyond our own borders, those were all examples just here in America. But when we widen it to the rest of the world, we see that the same kinds of conflict are occurring all over the world, and even in greater uh, extents and uh, and amounts all over the planet. Humanity is divided and in conflict with one another. It's one of the results of our sinfulness. But as Christians, those things that used to divide us do not divide us. We still have differences, but we do not have division. God has brought us together as one new humanity and reconciled us all to himself together. And that is one of the ways that God wants to flip the script in your life. He wants you to have a life in which the things that divide people are not barriers to you. Christians from different cultural backgrounds can love and accept one another as equals before God. Christian women and men can treat each other as equals with love and acceptance instead of lust and rivalry. We can treat people of different economic levels as our equals, not as people to be belittled and ignored or envied and blamed. We are all members of the household of God, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in his instructions to a young pastor that the apostle lays out the family relationship that we have as Christians. He's telling uh, Timothy how to treat the other people in his church. And he says, Exhort an older man as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That is flipping the script. Instead of being divided in the way that humanity is divided all around the world, As Christians, we are to be united in one family, one covenant people of God. Ephesians 2 finishes with a description of how God wants to use us as a united people of God. He says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The foundation of the people of God is the apostles and prophets. That is, it is the sacred writings of the apostles and prophets that we have here in our scriptures. That is our foundation of the church. And Jesus is, of course, the cornerstone, the key to the whole structure. And it is in Jesus that we are all united and we together become the holy temple of God. What does that mean? It means God dwells in his church. he doesn't dwell in a church building. That's one of the nice things about meeting in a school like this. We don't get confused that this is where God dwells. This is a cafeteria, right? Um, God dwells in his church, meaning he dwells in us, his people. Together, we are God's presence in the world. God dwells in a spiritual temple that is n- made up of all the true believers in Jesus who have put their faith in him throughout the world. We together are the presence of God in our world today. God does not dwell in a physical temple, but a spiritual one, and we as Christians are being built into that temple today. See, we are not simply highly evolved animals trying to f- survive and find some enjoyment in our lives. Our calling is great. We together are the presence of God on earth. We bring God's love, his mercy, his joy, and his message of salvation to the rest of the world. That is what it means to say that we are the temple of God. God does not want you to live an ordinary life He wants to take you from your sins and bring you into his salvation. He wants you to be united with your fellow Christians into a great community that brings the presence of God to a needy world. Remember where you came from and lean in to the new script that God is writing for your life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for taking us from where we were and bringing us into the new community of your salvation. I pray that you would help us to live out the unity that we have as we seek to be the temple of God and be your presence here. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.